Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. I do have the text there printed for you on your outline. I will actually begin with uh, two verses from, or three verses from John 13, which give context, but you might just keep your Bible open to John 18. That's where we'll focus. This morning will be a little different than usual in that I'm going to use this passage and uh, talk about what it means as a means to then cause us to contemplate, particularly this week, about why the death of Christ is so important to us and why his resurrection uh, so verifies everything about Christ. Uh, This is known as Holy Week, and so we set to the task this week, starting on Palm Sunday, uh, remembering Jesus entering Jerusalem, really for the final time, at least in that capacity, as the, the lamb coming to slaughter for his people. And we think of that today as a means to launching a week of contemplation, a week of meditation upon what Christ has done for us in his death and in his resurrection. Be sure to come back Friday if you can. Uh, I'm going to leave this a little open-ended on purpose, that you might think and reflect throughout this week. And then Friday, be focused in on the death of Christ, and then come Sunday with the resurrection of Christ. So hear God's word. I will read some context first, John 13, and then I will pick up the text in John 18, starting at verse 15. In John 13, as Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. John 18, starting at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Ask, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, 
a rooster crowed. Let us pray. Father, help us to see the grace of a rooster crowing. In Christ's name, amen. The 16th century Reformation, in my opinion, is the most important event of the post-apostolic church. And the reason being is it called the church back to reflection upon what the word of God, which was to be the locus of authority, what the word of God said. Now, whether you, whatever side you were on the Reformation in those days, you were called and compelled and challenged to consider that question. And so for that reason, the Reformation had a widespread effect, not just on those who became Reformed, but the church as a whole had to address the question, where is our authority structure? Now, one of the things the church had been doing for years up to the Reformation is making more and more holy days, more and more feasts, more and more things that you had to follow. And it got to the point where the, the time of the most reflection, the most important time of the year from a church calendar standpoint, was so shrouded in different feasts and activities that you lost the simplicity of the meditation we should be about during this time. I mean, there, were, uh, there was an eight-day celebration in ex there's the 40 days of Lent with Ash Wednesday beginning it, but of course there's also in the midst of that the eight days around Easter Sunday, which would make it easy to forget what Easter is supposed to be. Uh, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday, Easter Monday even. I'm not knocking all that. I'm not saying it's sinful. But I would like us to be very, very pointed this week. I would like you to be very pointed this week about considering very simplistically what does the death of Christ mean for you? What does the death of Christ mean for your family? And I don't mean what you feel like it. What does the scripture say, says, how does it say what the death of Christ means to us, the people of God? Simply consider this again, all throughout this week, every day this week. I'm going to give you some questions as we look at this passage. I'm going to give you some things to think about. I'm going to be blunt with you. Think about how these things relate to what we read about Peter. Think about the rooster crowing in your own life. Come back Friday night, consider the death, the sufficiency, the total, the total efficacy of the death of Jesus for us, and then celebrate with us the, re the resurrection on Sunday next. So I want to ask you some questions based on this passage to guide you in your meditation this week. First, I want to ask you, how are we different from Peter? Uh, I just read a, a passage most of you are familiar with. In fact, I remember it being one of the passages I heard early on uh, as a young person hearing the story about Peter. I heard it often, and I remember thinking to myself, how bad he blew it. I mean, that was really my thought about Peter. In fact, I remember reading a little Bible book about Peter and just about uh, how he basically messed up all the time. In fact, I remember thinking to myself, boy, this Peter, how did he get in the Bible even, you know, when you really consider it? And uh, I remember thinking, Peter, first of all, the one that really got me as a young boy was the walking on the water. And, and I remember distinctly thinking, how could you be privy to such a miracle and, and, and still fall apart. I mean, here you are looking at God, looking at Jesus, who is God, and you're walking. And, you know, do the math, Peter, that, you know, as soon as you take your eyes off him, you're going to fall. And I remember being kind of smug about it, like, how could he do that? And, and furthermore, he's a fisherman. Surely he spent a lot of time in the water, and all the time he ever spent in the water, he probably never saw anyone walking on it. And here he is walking on it, and he'd have the nerve to take his eyes off of Jesus and fall into the water. Boy, that's kind of lame on his part. Don't you? How could he be an apostle? Then you think of other times, other things that he said. You know, I remember uh, at one of my favorite episodes is with Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? And he gives this powerful confession, really the confession which the church has been built upon, and the apostles take forward. And, and just shortly after making this 
incredible profession of faith that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that, just a few verses later, do you all remember what Jesus has to say to Peter? Do you remember? Get behind me, Satan, because he wanted to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He thought he had perspective, then he misunderstood, as all the disciples did to some degree, why it is Jesus had to go to the cross. You see, I believe, and this is important, please gather this. I believe that Peter, as he is telling Jesus back in John 13, that I will lay my life down for you, I believe what he's saying is that in my strength, because I'm a strong person, because I believe in you and I grasp you, I hold you, I will lay my life down for you. I think all the disciples before the resurrection, quite frankly, I'm not saying whether they were born again or not, I'm just saying that I think that they, to a degree, believed there was still something they could offer God in their devotion. They saw the great man Jesus was, the great things he did, and Peter's saying, I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus said, oh, will you? Because Jesus knows that he has no power in himself to do anything to commend himself to God or Christ. But Peter believes in his self-empowered heart that I love him so much, I will lay my life down, and when the moment comes, I'll do it, and I'll pass the test. I think this is true of a person before they come to complete understanding, anyways, of the gospel. A person may be regenerated, may be born again, but the profession of it that evidences it is one who has no merit on their own, no ability on their own to hold Christ, it's all Christ holding them. And this is what we see in Peter when Jesus challenges him back in John 13 by telling him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Right now you think you're tough, you think you're strong, you're resting upon your supposed strength and superiority as one of my disciples, but I'm just telling you, you're going to deny me when it comes to it, especially, without having said it, relying upon your own strength and without any ability on your own to hold on to me. Why or how are we different from Peter? Well, let's look at what happens with Peter and then consider how it parallels each of our lives. Uh, despite my thinking down about Peter as a youngster, uh, as I read this and I start really doing the math about what it is to deny Christ, I have to confess that I'm much more like Peter uh, than I had first thought. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. Here we're talking about, undoubtedly, the writer of this gospel, John. John was much younger than the rest of the disciples, and so he uh, was the one who Jesus loved. As it's the reference, he's the one who was given Mary to take care of as Jesus was dying on the cross. He's the youngest. Uh, he ran to the tomb with Peter, and he outran Peter, because he's just a young guy. He's able to run real quick, and that's who we're referring to here, and he had some in with the high priest that allowed him to get in to the inner court where Jesus was being tried uh, in that mockery of a trial or the start of the process. Uh, so Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. You see him going in and Peter being stuck outside, verse 16. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. The servant girl, I mean, that's one of the lower-ranking officials there. Okay, she wasn't high on the, on, the, on the hierarchy. She just was keeping watch at the door, letting people know who came in, and so forth. And so John says to the, to the girl, more or less, let him in, and he comes in. But as he's going in, look what it says in verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said immediately, I am not. To a servant girl. We're not talking about a Roman soldier. We're not talking about a governing official. We're talking about a servant girl. And he immediately says, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was, it was cold. 
and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warning, warming himself. Now get this picture, because I think it happens to us all the time, brothers and sisters, all the time. If we do something sinful, we have a moment of reflection, and it's at that moment that something critical happens. We decide if we're going to stay in our sinful position or not. Peter made a decision, without doubt, when he went to the fire, warmed himself, several hours went by before the end of this process. I mean, the rooster crowing happens at daybreak. This is happening in late evening. So he has a long time to think about it. Now, my first reflection is that there's no part of me that has trouble believing in the spur of the moment trying to self-protect and guard one's safety that you might say something you don't really believe or you just, you just say something that you're going to regret soon after. And maybe that's what happened. That first denial is just he's immediately, and he hears what's happening. You remember the rest of the text, they're asking him about his disciples. So it's not like Peter was totally out of the, 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 the focus, and he just lopped a guy's ear off not too long ago. So chances were high and someone might be looking for him. So he just self-reacts and says, I'm not. And he gets in to see what's happening, uh, or at least he can see a bit, and he's now warming himself in this inner court. He has this moment to think about what he has just said. And I don't know about you, but there are many times in my life, life when I have an opportunity now to reflect on something I just said or did. Maybe it's something I said to my wife or my kids or a brother or a sister that I know I was sinful, I shouldn't have done. And now I have a moment to make a decision about, at least humanly speaking, about repentance and going and making that right and confessing and deciding to do differently next time. Or I could become set in my sin and say, you know what? They did it to me first. And even if what I did is sinful, I'm not going to go back to them. I'm going to stay right here and wait for them to come to me. And that's a dangerous place because almost always that just propagates more sin. Uh, success never comes from sinful starts. And so you're not going to get out of that well by continuing on in the sin. And so Peter sits and mulls, uh, keeps to himself, self-preserving mode, watching out for his own back. He's concerned for it. Now in verse 25, now Simon Peter, down after this, this interlude with the Lord Jesus being struck, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, those people who are around him warming themselves, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? After all this contemplation, after this thought, he denied it and said, I am not. After a time of contemplation, this is his answer, and then verse 26, immediately following, it seems, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. By the way, sin finds this out, doesn't it? I mean, I, I take the position that Peter was trying to kill this guy. It was just such a bad swordsman that he missed and slopped the guy's ear off. I mean, just given Peter's overall demeanor and rashness, it's probably not out of the question, is it, that he just lunged after the guy and the guy ducked and got his ear. Well, wouldn't it just be providence that there happens to be a cousin of old Billy Bob whose ears got cut off just hanging there at the fire? And there's Peter thinking he got away for it with it the second time. Another guy goes, now, wait a minute. You are one of his disciples, aren't you? And so now things come into view a bit for Peter. He denies it again, and at once the rooster crows. Can you feel this for just a moment? The rooster crows, and all of a sudden, and this is such a pivotal point in the whole story, and if you don't get this, you won't get the rest of the grace of this story. When this happens and the rooster crows, what happens to Peter, and we know from other passages in Matthew and Mark that talk about him weeping bitterly, we know that he immediately comes to a realization of the truth of what Jesus said and his utter failure to hold Christ. 
It's at that moment that he realizes, and, G, and so do you see, it's a grace that this old rooster crows, because it proves what Jesus said and brings to his mind, it conjures in his mind what Jesus said in prophecy in John 13. And he's, Jesus is right, Peter says, and I failed him. And not only did I fail him at this point, if I'd fail him now, I'd fail him every way if it's my strength. I can't hold him. And I'm reduced to nothing. He goes away and weeps bitterly. That's the only response we can have when confronted with our sin, when confronted with our failure. I can't hold Christ. That's the most gracious rooster to ever live. By crowing at that moment, Peter goes away and weeps bitterly. And the story will continue, but for a moment, let's just pause. How are we different from Peter? If anyone's here today self-righteously, and we all go through spells of self-righteousness. Some are still fixed in your self-righteousness and are not regenerate. You're fixed in your self-righteousness to the point where you see Peter and say, I could have done differently. Or I could give or offer something unto God. I would suggest that you consider again the seriousness of denial and what it says about our ability to hold Christ. There are many ways in which we deny Christ. And it's not always vividly where someone asks us, do you know Jesus? And you say no at the workplace, in the neighborhood, the marketplace, where have you. It's, denial itself is sin. When you think about it, you're denying at that moment that you're aligned with Christ as your Lord. So you deny him whenever you do something that goes against his lordship. So in a very general sense, can we not agree that sin is denying Christ? It's affirming my lordship over Christ's lordship so I can do the thing I want to do right that moment. I know what God says is best for me. I know what joy will, where joy is, comes from, and it's not from my own will. But at this moment, I want that thing more, and I deny Christ. In that way, every one of us is just like Peter on a regular basis. I want you to think about some specific ways. This week, take to the cross. Take to Christ. Say to him, I cannot do this on my own. I need you. I need you to save me from this. And think of all the ways in which we deny Christ uh, throughout uh, our lives. First of all, maybe it's that you have become dependent upon something other than Christ. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's something outside of your body that you take in now uh, that it becomes your dependency. You know you're not depending on God, but you're depending upon Christ. And I don't mean just you know, your basic medication. I'm talking about you get hooked on some prescription drug that starts out to help you with a pain. Next thing you know, you're lying to people to get more prescriptions for it. And you're relying upon it, and you become addicted to it. And your Lord is now that little pill or that little bottle. And you don't care who you, what other sins you've got to commit to get it, you're going to do it. Uh, it could be alcohol. Maybe it started out, oh, it calmed me down. Or it made me, you know, I just took a few drinks. Before you know it, you're taking six or eight. And before you know it, it's a regular basis. You can hide it from everybody. But really, you're numbing everything that's about you and you're really worshiping it, or you're finding sufficiency in it, instead of Christ, you're denying Christ by going to this or to that. I don't know. The Lord has spared me to this point in my life from those two particular issues, but I would be willing to confess that it's not that easy with food. I've always struggled with not eating too much, with recognizing I can't, don't need that next bite. I don't need it. I need Jesus, not it. And I think it's become kind of the acceptable thing among Christians. But let's be honest, there's a sense in which we deny Christ when we elevate something else to such a level of pleasure and satisfaction that at that moment, at that very moment, we love it more than anything else. And you fill in the blank, brother and sister, because I guarantee you, guarantee you everyone here has something that resonates in their heart that says to themselves that, you know what, Peter is not so much farther down skid row than I am. 
I can recognize that I need Christ too. I can't hold him. In our day, I think it's very difficult, very difficult for people as it relates to sensual sin of any sort. Uh, Men and women, it's not just about men being drawn into these things. Certainly, the the internet and the proliferation of pornography is serious, and it's, it's sucking people in, and it's trapping them, and it's making them feel always ever dirty and always ever... Uh, committing infidelity, and it's a terrible thing, but it's happening across the board. Uh, the, the, you know, women getting on the internet to have chat relationships with people that are not their husbands, and men getting hooked into something to where they look at their wife in a different, unhealthy way forever because they can't get it out of their head. It's denying the promise of God to us and the fulfillment he gives us in his order for something else at that moment. It's denying Christ. Falling into materialism. So easy, so prevalent, especially in our country. We have been gifted with so many things. And what is materialism? It's actually, with the ism at the end of material, it's, it's really what? A worship of material. It means stuff that's temporal that you and I on a spiritual level, as we talk about, we admit, that's lame. Why on earth would I worship something that's going to be gone? That after I die, or it's going to wear out, and when I die, they're going to divide it among people, and it means nothing in the next life, which is far longer than this life. Why would I worship that now? Good question, isn't it? But we do it all the time. I mean, we compare ourselves to what so-and-so has, or if they have it, I should have it, and I'll be happy if I get this, or I'm depressed, I'm down, i got to go shopping. i got to go get stuff, because I can. I need to have more stuff. And then you sit around, and you're embarrassed sometimes, and you realize how much you do have, and how little of it, percentage-wise, has gone to eternal things. That's denying Christ, brothers and sisters. Let's call it what it is. How about growing silent in the public square? You think of Peter standing there at the fire, but what about when you're in the workplace, in the neighborhood, uh, the marketplace, at school, or wherever it is, and you have that opportunity to share Christ, and I don't always mean even specifically by what you say, but maybe by what you do, by a choice you make and how you act, and instead go with the crowd, so to speak, and deny Christ by going along with one who's ignorant about Christ. In a sense, that's denying Christ before man. Not being salt and light wherever God places you is denying Christ who is to be Lord of your life. Someone ought to be able to look at you and at least see there's a difference and hopefully over time see that your Lord is Christ and that makes you a a more faithful worker, a more faithful friend and it makes you true and so forth. But ultimately, you're not denying Christ by your life. I could say so many others. What about fits of anger and rage? I think I hear brothers and sisters talk and, and... You know, we justify, you know, blowing our tops at certain things. Boy, I just went off when this happened. I can't believe he cut me off, and I I can't believe this happened. And and, and you talk, and you start hearing yourself talk, hopefully, and realize that we have not been given a spirit of wrath from God, but there's this sense in which we just find it's okay. And I can go off in this area, speaking to my wife a certain way, or my children a certain way, my husband a certain way, if you're a woman. Think about how this shows itself to be denial of Christ. We give over to gossip, to slander, denying Christ by our actions. I could list so many other things, and I can list them because they're so real to me as a human being also. I understand these things. Just as you feel them, so do I. So do we. And when I think of Peter, and I think of Peter saying, I will never deny you, I see what happens to Peter, and I want to stop and say, the rooster is crowing for me too. I cannot hold Christ. I cannot hold Christ. I need him to do something about this huge dilemma that I cannot hold him. 
We're not really that different from Peter, are we? Does the rooster still crow? That's the question I want to ask at this moment. Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Total fulfillment now of this prophecy that Jesus utters in John 13 and in other places in the other gospel. And it says, as the rooster crows in Mark 14, he broke down and wept. In in Matthew 26, he remembered and he went out and wept bitterly. So as the rooster crows, as it comes to your mind that what has happened is sin or self-reliance that has resulted in sin, it ought to cause us to be convicted and convinced of our sin. In, not a, as a typology, but the rooster crowing for us today is the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin on us. That's the rooster crowing, and it happens all sorts of ways. Uh, but we know that God promises that the Holy Spirit would have such a function. In John 14, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus arguing for why he would go to sit at the right hand of the Father and then send the Spirit. He says, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the job of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. Now, to the world in general, anyone could have conviction. Judas had conviction. I mean, he was convicted immediately after what he had done. Now, why was he convicted? He was convicted because he now not, didn't have a place in society. The guys he'd hung out with the last three years weren't going to be happy with him. He had no friends. He felt bad about what he did for what it would mean for him, and he hung himself. That's worldly sorrow. That, anyone could have that. A terrorist could have that to some degree. But that's conviction that will lead to hell. The difference is what happens in Peter's life and happens in the life of the believer is the spirit convicts. Conviction becomes the kindergarten for repentance. You're convicted of your sin, convinced of your sin. In fact, that's the opening door to salvation. One cannot come to Christ unless they first see, and the spirit of God has to do this, they first see and are convinced of their sins and the dreadfulness of their sins. Not just the loathsomeness of it, that it makes my life bad, but the dreadfulness of sin. Meaning it brings great dread to me because of the separation between God that I will experience. The righteousness of God that I will have show itself in wrath upon me because I'm a sinner. Only the Spirit can give that that kind of conviction. And that's the exact crowing of the rooster that we hear in our lives when you have that, and this isn't a technical term, but the intertweaking of the Holy Spirit in you. When he takes the word you've heard preached or taught or read and tweaks your spirit in a way that you know what you're doing is wrong. But you don't stop there. You turn from it. And it, it may take people helping you turn from it, all manner of things, but you turn from it. That's repentance. That's conviction leading to repentance, if you will. I love what one Puritan says. No man can be a child of God who has not seen his heart to be so sinful as to need a regenerating grace, his sins so great as to deserve everlasting condemnation, and his helplessness so complete as to need an almighty Savior. McChaney said, The Holy Spirit is the all-wise, almighty, all-gentle, and loving. Still, he cannot persuade a poor sinful heart to embrace the Savior without first opening up his wounds and convincing him that he is lost. This is what happens to Peter when the rooster crows. I hope it's what happens to you when the Spirit of God tweaks your spirit. Uh, When you hear the Word of God preached and you recognize that there's a need for change and there's a need to embrace Christ. There's a word of warning, a correction, a rebuke. 
that a brother or sister in Christ brings to you, that this is the rooster crowing and helping you turn uh, some life-disrupting event. And I don't want to spiritualize every event that happens, an accident, an illness, or this or that, but recognize sometimes God does allow for or, commit or, or superintend over things to happen to stop us in our tracks so that we don't go straight from the Father's house to the pig pen like the prodigal, that we turn from that could be the accountability of the discipline of the church, corporate, coming to us to say we must turn from this. You better believe, praise God, that the rooster still crows today. Hear it and react just the same way Peter does. Weep bitterly by saying, I can't do it. The thing I promised Christ, I can't do. What can save me? Only Christ. And he looks to Christ and he sees what Christ does for him. We see this as, he, as, the, play, as the, the story unfolds and Peter doesn't run away and hide, doesn't run away and hang himself. He goes to the empty tomb. He can't beat John there, but he goes to see it. And he hangs out as Jesus appears, and there's this kind of silence that happens, at least in the text, that culminates in a moment. We'll get there. But I want you to consider what Christ has done regarding our denials. What did he do? Did he say to Peter, you messed up for the last time? I'm sick of it. How many times are you going to promise stuff? No, Jesus knew calmly what would happen and knew that the only way Peter would be faithful would be for him to go to the cross for Peter and to give Peter his righteousness. Peter had no hope otherwise. Jesus knew this. He said it to him. It wasn't like he hid this from them as he was living, in, uh, in living among them and leading them. But he recognized that Peter would fail repeatedly until Peter was given the righteousness of Christ and started to live in light of the identity he now had in Christ. There would be no hope for Peter, there would be no hope for Tony, there would be no hope for you if it were not for Christ's death and his imputing of his righteousness to you that now gives you a reason to respond. That gives you the ability to live in light of this grace. Jesus takes our denials to the cross. Good Friday, obviously, we'll have more specifics on all that goes into the atonement and, and as it relates to what we, uh, the benefit we have in the crucifixion. But recognize this that it's God himself that has to give us this repentance. In Peter's life, he worked it through these circumstances, but it's God who actually gives us repentance. I don't want to lead anyone to believe that by being convicted, you can now yourself turn, but rather God grants repentance. Conviction of sin is the start of that process. Think of it this way. When the gospel is being preached in the first century, Gentiles were starting to come to salvation, and people were amazed at these Gentiles. They weren't from Jewish background, and they're coming to Christ, and this is the response they had. Acts 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. He didn't say, isn't it great that they're turning from their sins? He said, can you believe it? God's giving them repentance. So your salvation is given to you. Your repentance, your turning from sinfulness to life is from God. He gives it to you. It's his sovereign work. All of it provided in the cross. What is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace. That means it's totally from God. Grace is not something we can earn. We don't contribute to it. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, that's the conviction, an apprehension of the mercy of God and Christ, with grief and hatred towards a sin, this is the weeping bitterly, I'm sick of myself for doing this, Peter says, turns from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience to the point where Peter goes to a cross himself. He couldn't stand up to a servant girl, but now he'll be nailed to a cross. What's the difference between those two Peters? The cross of Christ, 
in the gift of repentance given to him, purchased by the cross. He restores Peter to service. In closing, turn to John 21. You know, there's a gap between John uh, 18, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then we come to John 21, and we still have not had, uh, at least we've not been privy to a particular conversation between Peter and Jesus after that day uh, that Peter denied Jesus. And what a scene you have in John 21. Uh, the, the disciples somewhat disheveled after this time. They're about to become apostles sent forth in the Great Commission. Uh, but here Jesus comes upon them, and they're back at fishing. They never were very good at fishing, but here they are fishing again. Uh, bloodshot eyes, uh, tired and worn from a night of uh, unsuccessful fishing. They're, they're looking at each other in their boat. With, then they hear the crackle of the fire, and they hear and smell the fish and the bread cooking. And they look over, and they see it is Christ who is cooking a meal for them. Jesus doesn't come and lay the Great Commission on them right then. Uh, he doesn't come and convict them for the things they've done wrong, for going back to fishing, for that matter. Instead, the Lord Jesus says in John 21, verse 12, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. He wants to serve them, to give them strength. Now, none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And now it's the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said now to Simon Peter, just pictured brothers and sisters, they have not had a personal one-on-one discussion that we know of yet. There's a group, Peter's probably feeling like we got to have this discussion. I want to talk to him about this. I know I failed him. Look what he did for me on the cross. There's a definite sense of empowerment that Peter has knowing that what Jesus said was true. It makes sense what Jesus talked about before. He didn't get it before and now he gets it, but he's still embarrassed. He denied him. And Jesus turns to him in front of everybody, talks to Simon Peter. And there's Peter kind of with his head a little bit low. And he says, Simon, son of, jo son of John, do you love me? more than these, and he says, agape, do you love me more than these, agape, the highest form of love? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo, which is brotherly love you, different than what Jesus asked him. So Jesus asks him again a second time, or tells him, feed my lambs, and then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me, agape? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo, which is, again, brotherly love. He's still not answering Jesus to the specific point of what Jesus says. You don't see it in the English, but it's there in the original language. He said to them, tend my sheep. A third time, which, yes, it, it correlates to a degree with the three times Peter betrayed, but don't get the impression that this is some kind of penance. He's simply trying to get Peter to realize the lesson he should have learned, that he can't save himself, and that it's only by Christ, love shown to him on the cross, exemplified by agape, not just brotherly love, that he can now be empowered for service. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him a third time, do you love me? Then he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I agape you. This is the profession of faith we've been looking for in Peter. And I would, confess, I would say to you, the reason why we know it's true is because what happened afterwards. He persevere, persevered there unto the end from that point. I don't know when Peter was saved, but I can tell you it's looking really good right now. Because he's saying that I do love you. And he's saying before God, you know everything. That's a powerful thing. How many of us would say, God, you know everything and be all right with that? He's all right with that because he's at the end of himself. You got to save me. 
You've got to do it. That's the heart of what's being said here between Jesus and Peter. Total restoration for Peter as he comes to the end of himself, feels badly that it even has to come to this where Jesus would ask them. And even in the process of Jesus asking him three times, come to a further realization. Yes, Lord, I love you. And using a word that it brings all the other terms for love together and only can be truly understood as God is love, agape. And what does he say as a result? And this is where I want to leave you. Feed my sheep. What does feed my sheep mean? Well, particularly for Peter, it meant that he was going to be a teacher in the church, an apostle in the church specifically. But it means to serve Christ now because of what Christ has done in providing this for him. Serve me now. Serve my sheep. Tend my sheep. Bring glory to me through tending these sheep is in essence what he's saying. And he's saying the same thing to you, however that manifests itself in your own life. How will you respond to Christ? I love what one author says, what I feel concerning my love is this, that I am far from loving thee as I ought, and as thou art worthy of being loved. But thou, O Lord, knowest that in spite of my awful failure, and notwithstanding my present weakness and deficiency, I do love thee. I want to leave you hanging. How will you respond to Christ's work for you? Will you serve him? Are you at the point of recognizing you can't hold Christ? He must hold you pray that's where you are. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the rooster crowing. Lord, help us to not ignore the rooster crowing today, that it tells us so much more than simply we've been caught. It tells us that we cannot hold on to you. You must hold us. Lord, save us. Lord, help us never to wake up any day and not be appreciative. Lord, help our to-do list be every day, repent of my sins. Believe the gospel every day. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we would be used to bring glory to you through Jesus Christ. Amen.